I never used to have a fear of death. I grew up in the United Church in Pinoca, and as a teenager, I did a lot of questioning and doubting and wandering, as most of us do. For a while, I wanted nothing to do with Christianity, and for a while, I dove back into it, but in a way that wasn't really even true to myself, and so it wasn't a lasting fit with my worldview and my beliefs. So I guess you could say that I've been spiritually curious for almost all of my adult life. When I first met Reverend Robin King here in Basha, I remember being so happy to hear him say that it is crucial to have doubts. It's important to ask questions, to listen to different perspectives, to never take anything on blind faith, and for people to find their own unique path and connection to God or to love or the universe or whatever people want to call that. And when we started this podcast, the goal was always to build a safe online community of people who are just as spiritually curious as we are, and to share with you some really powerful stories from regular people who are up to something really big. We are setting out to explore together some of the really big life questions. Why are we here? What do we do with the little bit of time we have? What are some of the traditions and tools from many different paths and backgrounds that can help us make sense of our lives and treat each other and the planet with love? How do we get filled up when we're feeling empty or alone? So if you're ready for some spiritual nourishment, you are really going to love this episode. My guest today is the wonderful Bill Harder who's back for a second conversation. And trust me, you do not want to miss the first episode with Bill. It is fantastic. That one is episode number 17 of season two, and it's called Bill Harder, The Deep Soul Work of Grieving. In that conversation, we talked about Bill's journey and how he got into doing the work he's doing with the Camrose Hospice Society, supporting individuals who are terminally ill or actively dying as well as supporting people who are working through the grief of a catastrophic loss in their life. The first time I met Bill was actually at a workshop here in Basha at our United Church, where he was holding a grief workshop. And I was there because at the time our family was and still is mourning the loss of my younger sister's son, Sage. My nephew Sage was ready to make his way into this world. When just a couple days before Charlene was scheduled to be induced, he suddenly stopped moving, and he passed away in the womb. We still have no idea why, and we are still reeling from his death. And on top of that, not long before the tragic loss of baby Sage, our family also lost my dad's best friend, Ken Galatly, in a tragic plane crash. And like Sage's death, it was completely unexpected. We still don't know the cause. And we're left with our worlds just spinning, attempting to make any sense of the gravity of the loss. Ever since these moments, when I heard the awful news, which I will never forget, my whole worldview has been pretty shaken once again, and my questions and fears about dying, about what comes next, about my own mortality, started to flood my mind and really impact my day-to-day experience. So I've been extremely excited to sit down with Bill a second time, and have another conversation with him, this time focusing in on the work that he does with people who are actively dying. In this conversation, we talk about Bill's own walk with mortality and death, 
and his personal beliefs about what happens during and after death. And also you'll hear about the amazing impact that volunteers and Bill are able to have by sitting bedside with people who have no one in their life to be with them so that their passing could be honored and held by someone with love and respect. One thing that Bill shared that really stood out for me was that it's not simply being present in the room that makes somebody alone or not alone. It is the knowledge that they're held and loved. There are a hundred other little gems in this conversation, so I won't give any more of it away. Ladies and gentlemen, here is my conversation with Bill Harder. Bill, thank you so much for having me back again for a second conversation as kind of a follow-up to our first conversation. It's so good to get to know you a little bit, and I really enjoyed our first episode that you did with, with us, and uh, also thank you for the coffee this morning. Well, you're welcome, Ben. Really a, pleasure to be back with you. Well, it's a beautiful day in so many ways. Um, it's spring is in the air, and I just walked over here from dropping off my car to get a new windshield, and on the way over, I was just like so in the moment and noticing the beauty around me and, and just excited to sit down with you. So I think what I'd like to talk about today is as a follow-up to our first conversation, which was mostly focused on supporting people who are grieving and the work that you do in, uh, in that, that deep soul work, as you described it, of grief. We touched a few times on the subject of death and dying. Obviously, that's that's what grieving is all about: is that that journey uh, following a loss. But uh, because we talked so much about death and dying, I thought you know this really deserves its own conversation. So, one thing that you you said last time when we were talking about grief that I just loved as a as a uh, soundbite was you said we really need to pull death out of the closet. It's it's time to do that. What does that mean to, to pull death out of the closet? I recently came across a writing about a family talking about loss historically, like perhaps a hundred years ago, maybe a story passed on from their grandfather or great grandfather. And when a loved one died, they, they probably died at home back in the day. And the body would be in a bed and the family would come and with great respect, in a very sacred moment, they would bath that body, wash it, you know. Um, and then they would choose clothes for this body and they would dress the body. Then the, the men, this is probably the women doing this for the most part, and the men perhaps would go and build a coffin, a box for this body which would be laid in this box in probably lay in state in the living room for a couple of days. I, I don't actually know how they kept it reasonably chilled, but uh, a day or two. And then people would come and, and visit the house awake, of course, right? They would come and they would have a cup of coffee and they'd bring some food to the family and they would look them right in the eye and they'd say, we're so sorry for your loss. And they would grab their hand and and shake it hard. I'm so sorry. And they would hug them. And then they'd start tell, telling stories. And all the while their kids are there and they're walking around and the kids are looking and touching the body and there's nothing weird about that. It's just life and death. And after a couple of days, it would be time they need to bury this body. And there would be the ceremony of the funeral and a burial. And all the while, 
nobody is thinking, oh, this is terrible. There's a dead body in the living room. They're, they're thinking, this is the rhythm. In this world, things arise and things fall. That is who we are as creatures. We are creatures of arising and falling. We arise from sleep and we do our day and we fall back into sleep. And there's a minor little bit of death even in that. We, we die when we come back into the world of consciousness and we leave the realm of, of sleep. And we die again when we leave the realm of sleep and we go into unconsciousness. We are, we are creatures of this rhythm of arising and falling. And in earlier times, people were at ease much more so with that. Then we come to a time maybe 100 or 120 years ago where we become more clinical and more industrialized <clears throat> with the idea of death. And all of a sudden, we, we give death to funeral homes. Now, I've worked with a lot of funeral homes, and I deeply respect the work they do. So not disparaging um, a very critical role they provide. However, as a culture, we gave them something that we ought not to have, and that was we took the body out of our living rooms, and we immediately had somebody come and do this work for us of dressing and washing and gathering around the body. And so now we, we are at a point in culture where we're so uncomfortable with the idea of even mentioning death or dying. Uh, many people don't want to consider planning their own funeral ahead of time, even if they're just very healthy. There's no way they want to go there because the idea of death frightens them. Or even writing a will is kind of something that we, we put off. That's right. Yeah, prime example. And so uh, in hospice, we, we do a lot of work with people of various ages, not just elders, who have a chronic illness which exacerbates to the point of actively dying. So actively dying is a that stage, maybe the last two or three weeks, where there's very definite physical signs that the body is withdrawing into itself and, and beginning to shut down. There's emotional... Uh, cognitive and physical signs, and soulful symptoms of this last stage. So many families will refuse to acknowledge actively dying. No, no, Frank's going to be fine. You know, we, we're waiting for one more test. We're waiting for one more procedure. Nobody has ever said to Frank, how do you feel about being in the last stage of your life? And so Frank lays there as the white elephant in the room, that nobody wants to address. Right. And this is ridiculous because this is one of the most profoundly powerful times in our relationship is when we can sit together as village, family, friends, professionals with somebody who is actively dying and tell stories and laugh and then shed tears and indulge in anticipatory grief. And here we are in a culture that can't even begin to think about having a body in a coffin in a living room. Right. So do you think that that, um, that, that piece has changed too, the, the unwillingness to, to have those conversations with the person who is actively dying? Like we, as, we've, as we've removed the body from the living room, as you described, do you think that that's a, a cause, a direct cause of this uncomfortableness that we have with even... Uh, admitting to ourselves or to the person who's laying in the hospital that, yeah, this, this is the end. For sure, in part, I, 
I don't know if I would say with any authority what different threads have created the mm. current mosaic, the weaving that we, you know, that describes the background of our culture. However, not seeing and touching something that's dead is significant for us. Because again, this phrase, we are a people of arisings and of fallings. So we're more urban than ever before in human history, like uh, hugely urban. So that means we are not slaughtering chickens or, or seeing animals die of natural causes. We're not picking up their bodies and moving them out into the field to be mm. um, eaten by, by wildlife, right. right? These things almost seem abhorrent to some degree. And, and not a debate about whether we should be vegetarian or eat animals, just, just the engagement of being around things that it's, are dead, not there touching a body, seeing yeah. what happens to it, seeing it decompose. We're so far removed from that. And yet at the same time, it is literally all around us, all the time. Yeah. I will slough off, I don't know, however many millions of cells today that die out of my body. That's a falling, even as new cells are dividing and there's an arising. Yeah, you're, that's so true, Bill. Like, even the family pet that is diagnosed with, you know, your your family dog has an illness, and you know it needs to be put down. It's whisked away to a veterinarian clinic, and you, you might be there uh, when they have the injection. But for the most part, it's kind of it's dealt probably with. not. You're, you're yeah. probably not. Your kids probably aren't for sure. And and so little by little, we've we've taken all of that away, almost. I, I would say that we've almost done it as a society thinking that we're doing a service to to people like, oh, the kids don't need to see that or, you know, no, no one needs to be part of that. We'll, we'll take care of all that nasty, those nasty details and, and the mess of embalming your loved one. And then you can see them with their makeup on and their favorite suit for two minutes and, and maybe not even, you know, not all funerals even include a, um, that uh, open casket portion. That's right, yeah. So... You might not even, and and you think about the stories where a loved one is lost in a, you know, an avalanche or a, a plane crash or something where there is no opportunity to see the remains, and that leaves a gaping wound mm. for people. So there is kind of wired into us a, a desire to to complete that, uh, to have to have some closure, maybe is a better way of putting it. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that, that we're kind of robbed of that closure when we've removed ourselves from death. I, I, I like that. And I, I see in those words one of the keys to our deepening as a person is that we, we become comfortable in our losses in as much as it is in it is in the falling that the loss piece the the moving into as Dr. Sarah Kerr says by the way she'd be an amazing person to interview if you could ever get her uh, Dr. Sarah Kerr is uh, somebody who works with rituals with those who are dying and grieving mm. uh, based out of Calgary it, she talks about moving into the underworld uh, and not hell. But just the the emotional or soulful underworld of loss, and it is there that pieces of ourselves shear away, and new parts arise. 
And as we come back out of this, of this lower part of this underworld transformational, painful time of loss, um, we arise with something new to give the world, some gift or blessing. We, we move forward with our loss transformatively. When, when we remove ourselves from death, from the picking up of a dead body of an animal or the bathing of a person, what we are resisting that underworld part. We're trying to, we're trying to jump across the, this chasm and you can't in the end. It's not possible. So we end up just with a part of ourselves, I think, that's truncated. It, it doesn't develop. The deepness that, that should be uh, rooted way, way down soulfully, ancestrally, is not accessed. Hmm. And uh, we don't have to look very far within our school systems, our social welfare network system, uh, medical system, to see uh, levels of rising mental illness, depression, suicidal ideation, um, struggles in relationships. Some of that's been there for a long time, but it, it just do a little research and we see the graph going in the last hundred years going significantly up on all of those issues. And at the very same time, more and more divorcing ourselves from this world of, of things being born. How many people can say they've seen something actually being born? Like, that's a brilliant thing to watch happen. One's own child or, or an animal, even a butterfly coming out of a cocoon, the, the, the hard birthing that happens in that. So we, we somewhere, a hundred and some years ago, we pulled back from this. I really don't know why we did. That would be an interesting piece of research, but we did. And now we live picking up the pieces of what has happened as a consequence. Yeah, you're so right. We're, we're, we've really removed ourselves from the natural world. It's like the, the human species has begun to think of itself as being so evolved, so brilliant, so capable, so much greater than the animal kingdom that we don't even think of our own bodies as being um, a mammal, as being an animal, as being part of nature. And the urbanization uh, trend that you mentioned is a huge part of that, being disconnected from where our food comes from, being disconnected from birth, from death. It, we've sterilized our lives to the point that there is that big chasm, that disconnect between us and just natural systems. Even with uh, within the healthcare world, we kind of think that there isn't anything that um, maybe aside from death itself that isn't beatable. You know, there's got to be a cure for everything. There's got to be a solution to every health ailment or problem. Uh, and in fact, even even death itself is something that Silicon Valley is trying to see if they can outsmart and and you know maybe in the distant future we're able to create a, um, a digital download or a copy of your mind, and then you're able to just live forever. And like it's, the it's show Altered Carbon. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and several others, but th that's a great one. Um, but it is something that millions of dollars is actually being invested in right now that they're starting to look at as a, as a serious, you know, is this a possibility? So all of this points to just how, how far removed we are. So... Could you tell me, Bill, a little bit about the work that you do day to day with people who are actively dying? So you, you give a great description of what 
what that uh, phase is when they're starting to, the body's starting to shut down. What, what do you do in your work with, with people who are in that phase? I was with a fellow recently. He had experienced the loss uh, to death of his wife, an elder man. Now, uh, he, I met up with him in his residence and then again in, his, in the hospital. Nobody had said to me, this person is actively dying. I didn't have contact with a nurse or a doctor, only with a family member who just simply said that he was in the hospital. So I went sort of blind into this room. And I'd met him once before, and I sat down, and he was sitting up on his bed. And we caught up with each other a little bit, just reminded him of who I was and the last conversation we'd had. He would talk for four or five minutes about a story, and then he'd tilt his head over and fall dead asleep for about four minutes. And then he would come awake, and right in the middle of a sentence that he, was, that he fell asleep in, he'd start talking again without missing a beat. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> wow. So we did this for 45 minutes. He would just nod off, and I would sit quietly with him and wait. And then he'd come to and keep going. He said to me, I'm really glad you came. I'm so lonely. And so I endeavored to find one of our volunteers who could go to spend a little bit of time with him, maybe once or twice a week. Now, I sent a note to this family member asking if it would be okay if I did this, and I didn't hear back. I didn't hear back because he died two days later. Mm. As I sat with him, I my thought was, he's actively dying. And the reason that came to my thoughts was these physical things, not just nodding off, there could be lots of reasons for that. But there was this sense in his whole body, the energy coming off of him was, I am pulling into myself. And this is good and natural. And nobody's telling me. Nobody's here to say, this is your journey. Let's do ritual. I also was not one of those people. I, I walked in looking through one pane of glass that was, this person is, is palliative, meaning has a life-limiting illness, but not thinking he was actively dying. And I walked out with that feeling inside me, I think he's actively dying. And missed the boat on sitting down with him again because he died before I could go back to see him. There is something incredibly powerful about sitting next to a being that is doing the, the journey work of preparing for crossing that veil. And regardless of religious perspective or having no religious perspective, there is something wildly sacred about the space around somebody who's doing this incredible deepening, deep, deep work. And at the, at, the sa at the very same time, engaging the world in a way, like reality in a way they never will again, and also pulling back from that at the very same time. I sat with a man, I began the journey with him in his home. Uh, he had cancer, and I would meet with him about once a week. And then he ended up in hospital. And he 
anticipated being able to move into long-term care and his condition exacerbated before that could happen. And so my visits then became very obviously about end of life and his family was willing to engage this story. So we talked about stories about him. We read to him. And sometimes he could engage and sometimes he was in different places. And he told us stories that had nothing to do with us being there in the room with him and that was good. One day, I had a phone call from a nurse at the hospital and she said, Bill, um, Mr. Smith has died and the family requests that you come. So I went. Oh no, sorry. They said, um, we think Mr. Smith doesn't have long and the family wants you to be oh, there. Okay. Right. So I went and, and he was still alive and his soon-to-be widow was sitting right beside him and his adult children in the room, just kind of quietly chatting with each other. And he was non-responsive. And I was invited to sit down right uh, by him, by his head and his wife beside me. And we're just talking and she, her heart is slowly breaking apart. And there's this intense energy in the room, this emotional energy of everybody knowing in one of these moments is the last breath. And, and this anticipation of this and, and a little bit of fear because, because this isn't what we're used to. We don't do this anymore. And yet also an, a, a joyful anticipation of he won't hurt anymore. And he, there's a particular rhythms to breathing that change in the last little bit. And there will be a death breath. And when the body dies, it relaxes, of course, and it lets out this last bit. So the first thing you do in life, the very first thing upon being born, is your lungs fill with air because they, they don't have air inside them to begin right. with. So you take a, breath, a breath in when you're born, and the last thing you do is your body relaxes and you push out that, that birthing uh. breath. Right? So we have this one breath in life. You breathe in and you breathe out. That's your whole life. That Everything is crazy to think about it that way. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? That's that's not original to me. Okay, um, it makes sense though because even in something like uh, in singing lessons, you'll talk about like taking a take a deep breath right down into the into the bottom of your diaphragm, but you never use all of the air. You never expel all of that air that's in mm -hmm. your lungs. You're you're using kind of that top half that's or right. top two thirds of of your capacity of of your lungs. And so maybe it's not literally the same molecules of, of oxygen and nitrogen and, and air that you did inhale at birth, but metaphorically, it is kind of one, one held breath or yes. component of that breath throughout your, whether it's 99 years or, or less than that, however long you live. Um, so where did, where did you come across that? Or do you remember? Um, let me chew on that as I talk. It might <laughs> not come. that it matters, but it's just a, that's a beautiful yeah, uh, visual. It is, it is truly so. Back to the story then of being so at he that he, le he lets out this. He's breathing, and that and at the end, it's not uncommon for somebody to take this, take a breath, and then there's quite an extended pause, and you kind of think, was that it? And then they'll breathe again, and it may mm. go like that for a little while. So Mr. Smith takes in a breath. And then 
nothing. And then there's this, and his wife looks at me and she says, was that it? And I said, well, call the nurse and have them check for a pulse. And it was, that was the last breath for this man. And you never know what's going to happen. Sometimes people will break out and just wail. And this is good. Not in this room at this time. At this time, they just came in, the adult children, a couple of grandkids, and the wife just drew into the bed. Everybody wants, to, there's this instinct, I want to put a hand on him. Is he still there? And the body's warm, of course, but quickly begins to cool. Within a half an hour, there's a real change in the texture of the skin and the feel. Wow. But not yet. And they touch, is he still there? And then begins the realization. Something has radically changed. What he was, who he was, is not in this collection of atoms and molecules and tears and heartache and the chaos of falling from the top half of Sarah Kerr's image of this upper world where we live and breathe and, and just falling, falling into the, into the underworld and losing pieces of ourselves as we fall. All of that happening before my very eyes with this family. And then you sit, and they did. They sat for a good long time with him. And then they told stories, and the nurses in the hospital were brilliant, and they bring coffee, and they're gentle, and they're just angels, and they do this every day. Hmm. And, and how they emotionally survive is a, a miracle. And, and they tell the family there's no rush, and there isn't. And they stayed a couple hours, and they didn't wash the body. And they also were willing to sit with this and be in it. So it was, it was marvelous, just, just beautiful. With hospice, we were constantly training our volunteers for the possibility of doing end-of-life care. Our volunteers do all sorts of stuff, and some of it is way upstream of dying with somebody in their home who has a chronic illness, for, for instance. And a lot of it is sitting with somebody, maybe somebody in a long-term care center who doesn't have family or village around them. And the staff says, you know, this particular Mr. Jones, he, he has nobody. Can we have volunteers come? And our volunteers go and take shifts and sit with, with Mr. Jones, maybe not quite 24 hours, but not uncommonly they'll be with him when that last breath leaves, and he's not alone. There was somebody with him, lovingly bearing witness to the end of this particular piece of his story. Wow. Yeah. It, it breaks my heart to think that there are people in that situation, and that it's not uncommon. No. That there would be people in, in our affluent uh, part of the world that we live in that could be in a bed with professional care there, but no one who's there just as their person or as their family or as their village, like you, like you said. And that's a whole different conversation of around, you know, why that happens and how our world has gotten to that point. But how important that, that there are people like you and, and the volunteers here that are, are interested in stepping into that space and willing to do 
that work. Like you described for the nurses, it must be spiritually and emotionally challenging and draining a lot of the time, obviously rewarding as well, but challenging for sure. Um, and for yourself, like you're, uh, you're doing other work. It's not always just being at the bedside of someone who's taking their last breath day in, day out, but you're frequently in that position. And I'm sure that you must see every reaction possible uh, right across the board from, like you said, people just breaking down and wailing to just uh, calmness. Um, Sometimes abject denial. Uh, There's been, I can think of stories where uh, an adult child of the newly deceased won't come in the room, won't won't meet with their own family. Just, just, it's such a, a tearing for them, such a loss that they, at that, at least at that juncture, they cannot make themselves present to it. Mm. And sometimes that's really hurtful for other members of the family. They just, they don't understand. To them, it looks like the person doesn't care or is weak. I don't see it that way. I, I think that each of us has to recognize our soul work in this and nudge up gently to uh, arising and falling, birthing and dying. And if a person has not been mentored in entering that space, it can appear very frightening and overwhelming. It is best to have compassion for those that just aren't in a place yet to be able to, to move into this sacred holding of dying space. Well, like you, you said earlier on, it's it's something that we're not used to anymore. Yeah, and no, so how can right. we expect someone who is so removed, like most of us are, from that process, from that, that holy space, that sacred process, to all of a sudden just walk into it with strength or with confidence or ease or knowing what how to handle that? So we have volunteers who are fairly regularly, not daily, but often doing the particular work of end-of-life care. It's a relatively small part of my current uh, job description. And a relatively small part of Joy's as well. Joy LeBlanc is our volunteer coordinator. The two of us, and and really her, like say 90% of, of her work is making sure this volunteer gets connected with this person. Mm. And making sure there's enough volunteers to support this individual. It's these volunteers that are, many of them elders themselves, not all, men and women, variety of ages, that gather up their courage for the first time they get introduced to somebody who is actively dying. And Joy might go and sit with them together to mentor them a little bit in that. This volunteer then, is doing something extraordinary. They're entering an arena, a space that almost all of our culture runs away from. Yeah. And we have these 80 volunteers, a good part of which are quite willing to meet up with somebody they've never met, sit with their family in the most intense time, and to just be a presence there, a calming, quieting presence, holding the story of the dying, offering practical things, giving family a chance to get away so they can sleep. Mm. I'll sit with your loved one for two hours so you can go have lunch. Mm. And then the family feels safe. They, 
they don't worry that their their loved one's going to die alone. Yeah. And you never know. And here's a weird thing. Not uncommonly, somebody who's dying will wait. It appears that they wait until the room is empty before that last breath escapes. Now, whether they're consciously doing that or not would be hard to ascertain. It does look like that. Just so often, the, the, the families or volunteers are with them 24-7. And they all step out one time because like, they just need a break and they're going to be gone for 15 minutes to the cafeteria to grab coffee. And that's when, when you know, Jennifer decides that the last breath should be. Wow. Or does she decide or not? I don't know. It's when or it happens. Or is it coincidence? You know, yeah. But, but it, very frequently. Wow. So we endeavor for that person not to die alone. Yeah. And against our best efforts at times. <laughs> it still happens. It still happens. Yeah. Not really alone. Uh, interwoven into the energy of love and compassion. It's not simply being present in the room that makes somebody alone or not alone. It is the knowledge that they are held and loved. Oh, that is such a powerful and important distinction. Yeah. But we, we live in a physical world and to varying degrees we're aware or not aware of these other planes of energy or of love or of spirit. Mm. And if you're not attuned to that or someone who just doesn't believe it or doesn't have faith um, or belief in that unseen part of life, then that would be especially scary, the prospect of someone physically being alone. Mm -hmm. So for, for all of these volunteers who are doing this work and, and for you when you have done it in the past and currently, what is it that makes you passionate about doing this challenging uh, and soulful but work that requires such courage and bravery and heart? Where, where does that passion come from for you? When my... 16-year-old brother-in-law completed suicide when I was 20. Uh, my wife at the time and I drove to Weyburn, Saskatchewan, where he had died. And he had taken his life in his, in his house. And uh, my wife, his, his uh, sister, didn't go up into the house. But I and uh, another brother-in-law went in. And the body had been removed. But it was a violent death. And it was upon us to, to clean up after. Uh, I'd never touched a body. I'd never seen a dead body at 20 years old. Never been to a funeral. And it wasn't a gentle introduction to death uh, whatsoever. It was, though, completely transformative for me in the end. And I realized that th there is a great mystery here in why something is alive one moment and not the next. I don't even know how we can properly define it. There's something mystical in this. And, and many religious traditions will give voice to why that is, and, and some agree and don't. All I knew at the time was death is death, life is life, and they rub right up against each other and dance around each other and are deeply intertwined. And I, I came then to a, success, uh, a series of deaths in my family and life uh, with the ending of the, my first marriage uh, four and a half years later. All of that, all of that gave me this desire to, to step closely with death because I, I sensed this 
this anxiety and fear of the people around me just generally like we don't want to talk about it we don't want to go to funerals necessarily it's some kind of strange obligation that we'll do and to me struggling with death so closely i guess it befriended me it said put your hand in the soil go to the garden in your backyard put your hand in in black soil feel it it is only there because of 10,000 deaths of plants breaking down yeah and what you feel doesn't feel like death it feels like life and yet it is because it is danced with death that is there and then it says go out to the front yard where the rose bush is blooming and smell the rose and know that it is alive because of the soil because of the dying yeah all of that became good to me comfortable more more than comfortable it became a grounding i think mm. yeah so it felt it started to shift to feel right instead of something to be feared or or to run away from it became real you see i think that death is no longer real in some strange way so here's a story. This young girl's mom dies from cancer. And she, the mom had had cancer for quite a long time. And the family was well prepared for the fact that this was terminal and she would die. This family wasn't afraid of death. In as much as they talked about it, they, they held it together uh, in front of them. And, and they talked about life. And so the, the children, albeit probably somewhat afraid for their mom to die, really in my perception were very open to the whole conversation so the night that her, her mom was in the hospital and the night that she died the family was gathered in the room and just before she died the fam most of the extended family stepped out and it was just husband and kids in the room and she dies and i'm outside with the other family and then everybody leaves except the youngest daughter and the dad says she wants to talk with you and i said sure so this is kind of going, stepping where angels fear to tread in my mind, <laughs> is being with, with little kids next to a corpse, and especially a beloved person to them. So I go in and I sit down. I don't say anything. And she wasn't really crying. She just had her hand on her mom. And she says to me, I didn't think it would happen so fast. And one part of my thoughts went, well, it's been like six years. You know, like it's not really fast. She's been slowly declining until right. this last week she was non-responsive. And right. But then I realized the impact of what she was saying. My mom was alive, one breath, and then she wasn't. It was like a switch turned off. It death happened instantly. There's no such thing as in as a slow death or a fast death. There all Everything is either alive or it's not. The energy, the mystery of life is in those cells or it isn't. And that little girl knew that. Wow. She knew that one moment her mom was there and just like that, her mom was gone. Uh, I'll never forget the, the deep wisdom of that child understanding, arising and falling. No kidding. Yeah. What do you think it's like, Bill, for the person who is doing the dying and it's impossible to, I mean, you can talk to people who are near death, 
you can talk to people who have even had either near-death experiences or death experiences where they've been clinically, mm. you know, their heart has stopped or their they've, their breathing has stopped and they've somehow been able to revive that person and they might have a story. So I'm, I'm really curious if you have stories like that from people that you could reflect on or share with us. But I'm also just curious what you're what do you think it's like for that person? And I'm acknowledging that you're, this is your best guess. Yeah. <laughs> but for, in the, for when that switch goes off, yeah. do you think there's an, a, an experiential piece of that that we will all have that's the same? Or is it different for all of us? What do you think happens there in those final moments? I've talked with families after a death, maybe... I meet back with them a week later or something for some reason and ask them what, what was the experience like? What, you know, how did you hold this? Sometimes they'll say, I felt Martha standing right beside me. Like the moment after she died, I could feel her there looking. Wow. And, uh, and that's happened a few times where somebody has said, a similar story. They 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 could all but see them. They they couldn't visually see them, but the the sense of their presence standing there was so strong. So, I haven't had that experience in any personal like my deaths in my my personal life. Um, so I can't speak to that. I just can only relay the story that has been passed on. Robert Romanishin wrote a book called The Soul in Grief. And he and Francis Weller, two of the most brilliant writers on the topic, I think, both American psychoanalysts. Robert Romanishin's wife died literally suddenly. She was standing in front of him. I think she was in her late 30s uh, in their home. And they were just chatting and she just fell dead to the floor of some natural cause. And he describes that it was a little while later, I don't know, a couple weeks maybe or a month he was in his room sleeping and he woke up because he felt somebody in the room like and there she was visually standing there and he had this interaction with her he he didn't hear her speak i think she spoke one word if i recall the story i think that is stunning that he had this piercing of the veil for a moment and it was bittersweet like a part of him so cherished that for just a moment he he was able to engage her again and then to know like i can't go where you are and you can't be where i am i don't know to me there's a tremendous amount of unknown and uncertainty in in this i trust everybody's stories when somebody says to me i know they were there i take that not simply as an aspect of cognition it isn't, there's something soulful. And even that word is slippery, you know, <laughs> what soul means for any one of us. But let's just say for me, it means the deep, deep parts of us, deep, connected, rooted to something, something more than atoms and molecules, something that's us. Something that's not your body or yeah. your thoughts or your, you know, uh, when you think about uh, mindfulness or, or meditation and that practice of starting to attempt to be aware of the thoughts that are coming in and out of your own consciousness. Who is it or what is it that's, that's doing the observing? You know, oh, there's some thoughts. Oh, well, the thoughts aren't me. Well, 
is me the thing that's noticing the thoughts? Is me, am I that thing which is constantly narrating everything that I'm experiencing and seeing and that kind of that voice in my head? Well, what is it that's noticing the voice in my head? So you can go down a bit of a rabbit hole to try to pinpoint and get your fingers on what am I? You know, you can point to yourself, but you're just pointing at at body, uh, at at flesh, at skin. You have, you know, you you kind of think of yourself as riding around inside your skull, looking at everything out of these little peepholes. But that again, that's just tissue. It's just a head. It's just a brain and and eyes. And, And there, there is, there is something greater. There's something more to us. Um, so that it's not, uh, it's not shocking that, that we culturally have these stories or these explanations for where someone goes and, and what someone is beyond their physical self. I think we need them. I think because it's just so wild, like as that little girl said, it happens so fast that one, one moment I'm with this person who's alive and I'm watching them and they, they breathe out that breath and that is no longer a living body. There are bacteria and viruses, the virome and the, and the, and the biome in that body that are going to continue to do their own little individual lives. But this creature, this person isn't there. And we, we must have some explanation for ourselves for that. We want to know how can you be there one moment and then not. Yeah, it, it, there's a cognitive dissonance oh, there yeah. where it's impossible to to resolve that. Uh, it's just impossible to get our <laughs> to get our heads around. I remember as a kid asking my parents these big questions, and uh, and maybe they didn't give me enough answers, and that's why I feel passionate about doing this podcast, mm. <laughs> which is you know touring around and asking brilliant people like you the you know you. Uh, to to help me explore some of these unanswerable questions. But I remember my parents just telling me, you know, there are some things that are just not for us to understand. The the concept of infinity, the concept of of what was here before the universe, if if there was something before. Where did we come mm. from? Where do we go? And uh and and, and really simply just who am I? <laughs> Even that's what seems like a simple question is so hard to actually answer. Yeah, you know, the, the Buddhist said, death is but a meditation. And really, in that perspective, there's no such thing as death or dying. There's simply livingness that meditates on transition or change. And so from our perspective on this side, it looks like, well, there was, this person was animate, and now they're not. So that seems like death. And yet yeah. the Buddha is saying for the dying person, there's no such thing. They, they, they go into a meditation on life and love and mm. they just, they just continue that. On that plane. Yeah. I think to, to really appreciate life, all of us must at some juncture touch death. I, I would encourage anybody listening to this, if you have an opportunity to go do a viewing of a body, reach over and, and touch that body, feel it. If you can sit with somebody who's dying, do it. And when they, if you can be there when they die, hold their hand, feel that. Feel what changes because it is tangible. 
and it changes us. Like I am gratefully different as a consequence of sitting with death many, many times and, and it being something that propels me into life. Wow. Yeah. And, and not just a human death, just go to your garden and just dig through the soil and find something that, that was alive and isn't anymore. Hmm. And, and really take that in, ponder that, uh, cherish it, let it be sacred. Yeah, it's not something that we reflect on. No. Uh, I've got one last question for you, Bill. For, for myself and my own journey with this topic, I think uh, it's exactly what you're describing. The, I've had a couple experiences with death in the last couple years that have been uh, like tragic deaths that have left me reeling and left me uh, in that cocoon of grief that you mm. described in our first conversation around grieving. And gradually, one of the results of, of the, my grief journey or where my grief journey has led me to is a place of really fearing my own death. Like, uh, and in conjunction with that, I've also been kind of going down this path of exploring mindfulness and exploring meditation. And, and so it's really brought me into an existential um, questioning kind of part, phase of my life. Maybe it's a midlife crisis. I don't know. But my, that bumping up against death and loss and then wrestling with my own mortality. I'll have moments where I'll, I'll just be going through my day or look in the mirror and I'll realize, oh yeah, I'm going to die one day. And it, it's kind of this forgotten fact that, you know, everyone, we're all, it's the one thing we have in common. 100% mortality right now. Yeah, right? they, just, they just released that the world health organization said the current mortality rate on earth is 100 percent. i mean that's crazy right <laughs> what are we gonna do what Bill? are we gonna do so so my my question for you that we'll end on i think is are, are you at peace with your own mortality and your own being uh terminally ill as we all are as as human how do you um, come to grips with your own mortality? I've already died. Somewhere down the timeline, I've already died. Just if, if we take the possibility that, that all of the timeline exists all the time, I am being born right at this moment on this part of the timeline. My consciousness seems to be residing at this moment in the timeline here. And over here, I've already died. It's already happened. And whatever happens between now and my dying, I, and I'm not saying it's all set in place. I don't know about that. Like, uh, but I just know I have died somewhere in the timeline and I've been able to navigate to that point. And since it's already happened, I, I didn't get some ripple down the timeline back to me right now that goes like, oh my gosh, this is just going to be awful. So I, I hold that, that, you know, somewhere down the timeline, I'm already dead and it was okay. And it will be okay for me now. And I suspect, like the Buddha says, it will be a seamless movement into something. I don't know what. I've been informed by, you know, Christian theology in the past. I've studied aspects of the Quran and the sutras and a little bit like life of pi, I, I've chosen not to stand in any one single place 
to look at these things anymore. And all of that gives me a quiet stillness that this too shall be okay. Hmm. That's beautiful. It's such a different perspective to look at it from versus the stuck in the present moment of now and that the future is scary and uh, something to be feared. It's when, as soon as you stop and think, well, it's in a way it's already happened and it's, it's just now journeying forward. Yeah. Beautiful. Bill, your insights and, and your way of uh, exploring these difficult uh, and heavy topics through story uh, is something I marvel at and really respect. And thank you for, for sharing your own personal stories as well as stories of others um, through anonymous names, of course, but uh, for sharing those with me and with, with our audience. It really means a lot. Mm, thank you, Ben. Uh, for people who are, might be interested in, in looking into uh, either volunteering or getting involved in this space that you're working in, whether they're part of this kind of region, like you're in here and we're sitting here in Camrose, Alberta, uh, and we don't know where everyone is who's listening, but regardless of where people are, what would be uh, something that someone could do to take that first step if they were interested? So get a hold of your local hospice. If you're in the Camrose area, you speak with volunteer coordinator Joy LeBlanc, and she will give grand introduction into how we can uh, begin working together with this with you and wherever you are if you're not anywhere near cameras there's hospice societies throughout alberta and around the world go online find your closest one call their volunteer coordinator and say i'm interested in learning about end of life care mm. um, life limiting illnesses grief care whatever their personal passion is mm. There's yeah, no hospice around that I've ever heard of that won't gladly take somebody with, sure. a, with a passion for yeah. doing this work. Well, the need is everywhere. Yeah, because of the mortality rate. Yeah, <laughs> apparently uh, people are dying all over the they world. Are. Really, right? You know? So, uh, so there you go. <laughs> but what an opportunity to make an impact, like you said, at, at one of the most uh, important times or moments of, of someone's life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bill, for doing the work that you are doing. And again, for sharing the story with us, it was awesome to talk about it with you. It was my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Well, once again, thank you everyone so much for taking the time to join us. I so appreciate your listening. If you are interested in getting in touch with Bill or myself to talk about anything that we touched on in this podcast or about volunteering with the Cameras Hospice Society or another one, uh, please get in touch with us. You can find contact info in the description of the episode. And also, you can get through to us through the Six Ways from Sunday Facebook page or our website, which is risingspiritministry.com. Thanks again for listening and be well. Be well.